Well, if you still have any questions about the youth cookout, you're just not very smart. I don't know what to say. We answered every question. Uh, um, I, was, I was blessed to get invited by um, some friends who were getting married to um, officiate their wedding. And so uh, they were holding their wedding up in San Francisco. And so they said, don't worry, the whole thing's set up. We got your plane ticket. We got your hotel. It's all good. You just got to come up because because the rehearsal dinner is going to be on Friday, and then the wedding is on Saturday. You can head back on Sunday. So I got ready and headed up, and I was I was actually sitting in the wee hour early morning traffic on the freeway on my way to LAX. My son was driving, and my phone went off in my pocket, and I looked at it, and it was from the airline. And it said, um, don't bother coming. Uh, San Francisco airport is all socked in with fog and they're not accepting any planes. So your flight's canceled. There's no new flight scheduled. And I said, uh, bet me. So I, I, cause you know, I'm a very important guy. (laughs) And I thought if, if, how are these people going to get married if I don't show up, right? So I have to get there. And um, so I just went to the airport, went to the counter. I said, hey, listen, I don't know if you know who I am, but um, you got to help me out here because these people are counting on me. I've got to get to San Francisco. And so they went about their thing and they said, well, no flights are going into San Francisco, but we can get you a flight into Oakland, I said, I'll take it. Flight to Oakland, that's not bad. That's pretty close to San Francisco. And I thought, okay, that's great. It was leaving in a couple hours, which meant I was going to be a couple hours behind, but that's okay because I scheduled myself to be there a couple hours ahead. I was going to just make it under the wire. So I took the flight, get on the, on the plane. We get there. We land in Oakland. I go to the Hertz rent-a-car counter where I have a car reserved. I said, hey, I have this reservation. They said, this reservation is for San Francisco International. This is Oakland. I said, I realize this is Oakland, but you're Hertz. You're there. You're here. It doesn't matter. Just give me a car. And they said, oh, but you went through Priceline. Everybody moans. (laughs) You you know where this story's going, right? You went through Priceline, so there's no changes allowed. I go, you've got to be kidding me. I can't pay a little fee or something. I said, no. I said, what do I do? They said, well, we think you should go to San Francisco International and pick up your car. It's waiting for you. I said, well, how do I do that? And so the guy was nice and he got out a book and he showed me, look, there's a, there's a you know, city bus that will pick you up out in front of the airport. You take the city bus to this other part of town where you make a transfer to another bus. And then from that bus, they'll take you to this other place where, they ha- where the train station is. You go there, you'll take a train, and that will take you to San Francisco, and then you take a bus from there to the airport. This is before Uber. I said, uh, okay, great. Now, now picture this, right? Um, I've got my, my backpack, which is filled with all my computer gear. I have a briefcase. I have one of those, you know, the travel suit holders holding my suit, right? And I have a suitcase, And now I'm going to be traveling through beautiful downtown Oakland and taking city transit. 
And so I'm like, wow, okay, let's do this. So I get on this bus, man. I've never been as uncomfortable as I was in the part of town we were in on this city bus going, I'm pretty sure I'm not coming out of this alive. And I took, the, I took the backpack with all my computer gear. I'm like, I can't, I can't lose this. I wrapped it, the, the strap around my leg and put it on the floor between my feet. I held on to all my stuff because I just knew somebody was going to beat me up and take my stuff. And, and so I'm trying to get all this through the bus. Excuse me, excuse me. Pulling this, you know, it's just crazy, right? Bus, bus. I get to the train station. I look around and I'm like, this is the worst part of town I've ever been in in any city in the world. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to die here. And I look around and everybody that I could see, they were just tougher than me. <laughs> and, and I was like, I'm in serious trouble. And I've got all this stuff strapped to me and I'm pulling my suitcase behind me. And this guy comes from the side and, and he, he was a big dude. And he's wearing a, a wife beater t-shirt and a, a bandana on his head. And he comes up to me and he goes, hey. And I said, uh, yes. <laughs> and he, he said, uh, that's your suitcase? <laughs> yeah, I'm pulling it. Uh, I, I said, uh, yes, sir. He goes, come here. Like, come over. <laughs> and he kind of leans in and he goes, you should push that in front or one of these guys is going to take it. And I said, thank you very much. <laughs> Put it in front and I walked with it like this and he kind of became my guardian angel. He kind of walked behind me and he made sure that I did not get, he's like, yeah, you, you don't fit here. <laughs> and, I, and I had to, it's a long story. I end up with all of this suitcase and the, all the stuff and I end up finally getting a rental car, but now I'm late. I don't have GPS. I'm heading into downtown San Francisco. It's traffic. If you've ever driven in San Francisco and you lived, congratulations. I made a right turn onto a one-way street. And I thought I was good because I was only going one way. But everybody else was going the other way. I mean, it was, it was just chaotic. And I'll tell you the second half of this story another time when I marched in the San Francisco Gay Pride Parade, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> but the point of this story is that, that I found it really difficult to manage my way through a really difficult situation, primarily because of my baggage. Just, I mean, that was really slowing me down. And, and what was interesting is I felt like I had no choice. What am I supposed to do? Just leave my bags at the airport? I have to take this stuff with me on this trek through the city. And, and so I just held on to it as best I could and tried to make it work. But honestly, it slowed me down. It tripped me up. It did all that kind of stuff. It gave me so much to worry about. And as it turned out, everything came out okay. But that baggage, man, it slowed me down. So I just tried to manage it. And I think a lot of us do exactly that with our personal baggage. For whatever reason, we're convinced, I can't really let go of this. I need to have this with me. I can't put this down. I don't know how to get away from this. 
And so we just hold on to and strap all these bags on us and we, we try to wander our way through life and make it work. And all we're doing is trying to manage our baggage. And because we're so busy trying to manage our baggage, we don't actually make it to where we're supposed to be going. We, we actually get held back. And, and we hold on to the baggage because we think, what else can we do? So we, we've been... We've been doing this series on, on baggage and how to let go and live free. And today, I, I want to I tell you a story about a beautiful young bride. It's her wedding day. She looks stunning like every bride does. She's in a beautiful white dress. Her father is walking her down the aisle. Her groom meets her at the front. This is the greatest day of her life. It's what she's been waiting for. It's what she's been planning for. And she looks into her groom's eyes and she knows that the rest of their lives are just going to be awesome. Now, fast forward 25 years. She's now middle-aged. She's trying hard to hold on to that youthful beauty, but most days she feels like she's losing the battle. She's getting ready to go out and leave her house and she, she puts on a hat that comes down the sides and covers the sides of her face and, and then she actually puts on a veil to cover the lower part of her face and then she wraps herself in a scarf and she's just covered from head to toe. And as she opens the door to leave her house, the first thing she notices is the oppressive heat. It's so hot outside. And yet she's all wrapped up, all covered up because she's about to go out into public and she knows what happens when she goes out into public. If people recognize her, if they see her, there's whispering, there's pointing, there's staring, there's all of that kind of stuff because she has a reputation. And so she does her best to just avoid the other people in the community. She heads out her front door and she walks into the oppressive heat. Now, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because the story doesn't really begin with her. The story begins with Jesus, and the story is found in John chapter 4. So take your Bibles and go to John chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, it's in the New Testament, which is the second section of your Bible. It's the fourth book of the New Testament, the book of John, or it's called the Gospel of John in some of your Bibles. And turn to John chapter 4, and let me just read to you what's going on. Remember, I said the story begins with Jesus. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, because we don't live there, it's hard for us to picture exactly what we're saying when we say that Jesus is in Judea and he has to go to Galilee. So I have a map for you of the area in the days of Jesus. And you notice Judea is at the bottom in the south. 
and, and Galilee is all the way at the top of the screen. And so he's going to be walking from Judea to Galilee. And you notice right in the middle, it says Samaria. And under that, it says Sychar, Jacob's well. And that's where the story takes place. So Jesus is going to go from Judea to Galilee, and he has to go through Samaria because it's right in the middle. And um, you may already be aware of this, but for those of you who are not, let me just fill you in. It says that he had to go through Samaria, but nobody went through Samaria. If you had to go from Judea to Galilee, if you had to go from Galilee to Judea, what you did was, from Judea, you would cross over toward Bethany, and at Bethany, you would go over the hills and into the Jordan Valley, and you would cross the Jordan River, and you would go up through Perea on the other side of the Jordan River, and you would not set one foot in Samaria. And the reason you would not set one foot in Samaria was because there are Samaritans there. And we don't like them, right? Jews have a long history with Samaritans. The Samaritans are a break-off branch of Judaism. There was a group a thousand or more years before this who broke off from Judaism and started intermarrying with Gentiles. And in so doing, they began to worship the gods of the Gentiles and they took paganism and Judaism and they tried to mix the two. The problem is the God of Judaism says, there is but one God and I am him and there are no other gods and you shall have no other gods before me. And so you can't mix paganism with Judaism. But that's what they tried to do. And so they became sort of this offshoot, half-breed race. And they were despised by the Jews. It was racism 101. They're absolutely despised because of their race. And because of their religious convictions. And so not much has changed in the Middle East. Right? I could put a modern map up of the Middle East. I'd show you the uh, Muslim areas and the Jewish areas and the Christian areas right in the city of Jerusalem. And so not much has changed. The racism still exists tremendously and the groups don't mix and they stay apart from one another except when they get together to fight. So that's what was going on. So all good Jewish men would travel through Perea and up through Decapolis, back over the river and there to Galilee. And that would be the route everyone would take. And yet, interestingly enough, if you go back to John 4, 4, it says he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. What does it mean when the Bible says that Jesus has to do something? I mean, this is God in the flesh. Who are we to say what he has to do? Amen? I mean, God has to do something? And yet, it's really interesting when you think about this. Turn the page to John chapter 5. And in John 5.30, we'll give you an example of this. Jesus is speaking here. Listen to how he describes his motivation for what he does. John chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus, I can do nothing on my own initiative. This is God the Son. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so Jesus, in, in becoming a man, has submitted himself to the authority of the Father and has come on a mission so that he can do the Father's will. He 
cannot do anything on his own initiative, but he has to do what the Father calls him to do. In fact, Luke chapter 19, I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. Luke chapter 19 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why he came. Jesus did not get knocked off of his mission. He did not forget his purpose. He never got sucked into somebody else's agenda. He, he, never, he never decided on his own agenda and went there. He was on a mission from the Father, and his mission was to seek and to save that which is lost. So, yes, it is appropriate when the Bible says Jesus had to do something. And the Bible says in John 4, 4 that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Even though everybody else always went around. Even though just walking through Samaria made a Jew ceremonially unclean. And he would have to go and wash because being, uh, you know, touching the filth made him filthy. But here's something to remember about Jesus. In every other situation, when you, when, if a per people didn't touch lepers, right? Why? Because they might get leprosy. But when Jesus touched lepers, lepers became clean. Okay, understand this. When Jesus comes into a situation that is broken, Jesus brings healing to that situation. When Jesus comes into a situation that is filthy, the filth doesn't get on him. He does away with the filth. He brings holiness to a situation that is unholy. And so Jesus has no fear to walk through Samaria. In fact, it says he had to walk through Samaria. He had to walk through Samaria for the same reason that he had to call Zacchaeus out of the tree and say, hey, I'm coming to dinner at your house tonight. He had to walk through Samaria for the same reason that he had to cross a stormy sea in order to meet one man who lived in a graveyard and cast demons out of that man and set him free and give him new life. He had to go through Samaria for the same reason that he had to get up off the ground in Gethsemane's garden and set his face like flint toward Calvary and go to the cross willingly. Jesus had to go through Samaria that day. He had to go through for the same reason that he had to leave the throne of heaven and enter the womb of Mary. This was his mission. John 3 says that he had to do all that he did because he loves us too much to let us be crushed under the weight of our own baggage. He had to do it. So anyways, it turns out Jesus had to go through Samaria. And, and there was an appointment, if you will, on his calendar. And it had been written there since before the beginning of time. He, he had to be in Sychar. He had to be by Jacob's well. And he had to be there by noon. Because he had planned something since before the beginning of time that was going to take place that day at the well. There was someone he had to meet. John chapter 4, verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, now you should understand how this system works. And by the way, this is the ancient system in all of the world. And in much of the world today, it is still done exactly the same way. Everywhere that I have been in, in you know, genuine third world country settings... 
the civilization pops up around water. If there's a place where you can get a well dug, if there's a river, if there's a spring, that's where they build their towns because you can't live without water. And so what happens if you, if you live in a community that is unlike ours, you can't just turn on a tap and water comes out. You have to go and get the water every day. And so every time I've been in one of these places, you know, in, in everywhere I've been in Africa, once you get outside the main city, then this is how it works. There's little villages and the women of the village every morning, right after dawn, before it gets hot, just as the sun is coming up, you see the women of the village walking toward the water supply, whether it's a well or it's a river or a stream or whatever, they're walking toward the water supply with giant empty jugs that they're carrying and they're fellowshipping and talking along the way and this is their community. That It's like a, like a coffee clutch. They meet every morning and, and they catch up on each other's news and they build their friendships and they go and get water for their family before it gets too hot and then they head back because their family needs water throughout the day. And when it gets to be dusk, they head to the well again because they need water to get their family through the night. And that's just what it is. And, and you always see women carrying these giant pots of water on their heads and they go back and forth to the water source. Always at dusk, always at dawn. But this woman, the one the one that had been in the white dress, the one who is now wrapping herself all up, in the heat of the day with all of this covering on, she's going to the well at noon. It says it was the sixth hour. The first hour is 6 a.m. in the Jewish calendar, and noon is the sixth hour. That means the sun is high in the sky at its zenith. It is beating down. And she heads to the well... And there's this man there. She wasn't expecting that. Jesus was there for a reason. Remember, he had to be there. He knew that she would be there at noon because he knew her heart. He knew her story. He had been watching her life. He knew about the baggage that she was carrying. He knew about her guilt. He knew about her shame. He knew about her abuse. He knew about her disgrace. He, he knew about her hiding She'd been used by men again and again, and, and by now she didn't think much of herself. Her self-worth was gone, her sense of dignity was gone, her reputation was destroyed, and anytime she went out into public, she went when nobody else was around because she didn't want to see the neighbors stare and whisper and point. Her past had spilled over into her present. And all she could do was try to manage her baggage. That was the best she could do. And so she came up with ways. I can avoid the women if I don't go in the morning. I'll just go at noon. She's trying to manage her baggage. And frankly, she's losing the battle. Look at verse 9. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You have to understand the culture in which she lived. Women were essentially the property of men. And Samaritans were despised by Jews. And Jewish men 
never speak to a woman in public that is not their wife. And here's this Jewish man in Samaria. Oh, and by the way, he's a rabbi. And he addresses her just like she was a human being or something. Just like she was worthy of some respect. And he greets her and asks her for some water from the well. And she does not respond to the question about water. She says, how dare you talk to me? Your people don't talk to my people. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Have you ever wanted to talk to God about something, but God wanted to talk to you about something else? You ever had that? <laughs> you, you sit down to pray, Lord, I, I just, you know, I, I want to drop by and ask a favor. I, you know, I lost my job. I need a new job. God, I have this job interview. Please give me this job, Lord. You want to talk to him about that? But in your heart, you just sense the Holy Spirit saying, um, I'd rather talk to you about the character flaws in your life that cost you your last job. And you're like, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. A lot of times with God, we have an agenda. Um, we drop by to see him because we need something. And he's so happy to see us. He just wants to talk about the things that we actually need to talk about. That's what's happening here. So what do you do when God changes the subject on you? Most of us try to change the subject right back. But God has a way of getting around that. Look at verse 11. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Uh, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? I don't know how he kept from laughing there. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will, come, will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Oops, there's that change of subject again. <laughs> she, she's talking about the water. She's tracking with him. If you have some kind of special water, I, I, I would love to know about that because I hate having to come in the heat of the day. And he says, I'll tell you what. Go get your husband and we'll talk together. She was trying to avoid making this personal. But Jesus wanted to talk to her about her. He wanted to talk to her about her heart, about her life. He wanted to talk to her about her past and, and more importantly, about her future. Look at verse 15 again. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. 
Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly, and I love this next verse, verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Perceptive, right? Now, you may know the rest of the story. Um, Basically, Jesus doesn't want to talk to her about what she wants to talk about. She wants to talk about anything but her personal life, but that's what Jesus wants to talk about. So she tries to change the subject again. She asks him some religious questions about if you're a prophet, maybe you know. Some people say we should worship in Jerusalem, and some say we should worship on the holy mountain. What do you say? And he changes the subject again. And he won't talk to her about the things that she wants to talk about because he's not interested in talking about religious debates that have been created by men. He came there that day because it says he had to. He had come because while everybody else saw this woman as damaged goods, he saw her as a child of the king. It had been a long time since she wore a white dress. It had been a long time before people looked at her and smiled. It had been a long time before she had the respect of anyone, male or female. It had been a long time since someone talked to her with kindness. He saw in her a child of the king. And don't forget, Jesus had known her all her life. He'd been watching as she suffered in a social system that, that disrespected women. He, he had been there at her first wedding and seen her in that white dress. And he had been there when that marriage came crashing down and ended. And he saw husband number two leave and husband number three and husband number four and husband number five and the men that came in between and afterwards, you get the picture? He saw it all. And then he watched as her self-esteem plummeted and she became more and more detached. He knew about every injustice in her life. He knew about all the times that she had been a victim. He knew about all the times that by her own choice to sin, she had, she had surrendered her dignity he knew where every scar was on her heart, and he knew how it got there. And, and when he left the throne of heaven to become one of us, he had this appointment with her in mind. He had to go through Samaria because he had to meet her because she's the reason he came. Because he loved this dear, broken damaged woman enough to do anything that it took to restore her and set her free. And so he came to Samaria that day to introduce himself to this woman who was on the brink of disaster because she could no longer manage her baggage. She was doing everything she could, but it was weighing her down and tripping her up, and she just couldn't manage it anymore, and he knew it. She needed to put the baggage down. And Jesus came to her and gave her a way to do that because no matter how others saw her, no matter how she saw herself, 
Jesus knew who she was. He knew she was created to be. And he refused to let her stay where she was. Guys, sometimes this whole thing of just hiding from Jesus or I'm going to get to it later, I'll get serious about my relationship with God later, that game that we so often play because, because we just presume upon the grace of God and we're like, he forgave me last time, he'll forgive me next time, I'll get serious about Jesus when I get to the next stage of life, all of that kind of stuff. You have to understand, God sees you where you are and he loves you where you are. And he loves you too much to let you stay there. Some of us are just struggling to manage our baggage. And we've been so thirsty for so long. Thirsty for love. Thirsty for acceptance. Thirsty for grace. We'll try anything to get it. And boy, have we tried. And everything we've done on our own efforts has left us bankrupt. But I have some good news for you today, especially if you're feeling thirsty. Jesus Christ is the living water. Jesus came so that life would be infused into us. I love the way he himself described it. He said, if you drink of this water, it'll be like a spring that is always bubbling up all the way into eternity. And, and every other kind of so-called water that we go to, to to quench our thirst always ends up being like sand in our mouths, doesn't it? And we think, maybe I'll go here. The world says this will satisfy me, and it doesn't. Maybe if I had that relationship, that would satisfy me. And for a while, it's great until it's not. And, and we keep thinking, if I just had more money, if I had a different job, if I lived in a different place, if I only, if I only, if I only. Listen, there's only one fountain of living water, and his name is Jesus. And you don't get to him by working harder. You don't get to him by keeping more rules. You don't get to him by being more religious. Your thirst will never be quenched that way. You get to him by raising your hands and saying, Lord, I surrender. Take me, I'm yours. And you give yourself to Jesus in that way, I promise you, the spring begins to bubble and you begin to experience that living water. Jesus had to go to the cross because he loved her that much. He had to go to the cross because he loved me that much. He had to go to the cross because he loved you that much. Whatever you think of yourself, when you look in the mirror, Jesus thinks you're valuable enough to justify laying down his life for you. And he did just that. Some of us, every time we walk past a mirror, we roll our eyes. Some of us have been so bombarded by what we think everybody else thinks about us that we've ceased to be able to think about ourselves clearly. And some of us have, have accepted this idea of, of drinking sand to the degree that we can't even imagine a different kind of life. And we're just carrying the bags 
and we're trying to manage them so they don't crush us. And Jesus says, you're dying of thirst. And what you need is me. That's why he went to the cross. He did it for you. And when you came in, you should have been given one of these cups, right? If you don't have one of these, wave your hand and we will make sure somebody brings you one. Okay, right here. Just leave your hand up until he comes to you, please. And the rest of you, go ahead and start working on this because we had some trouble with these. Well, these are new cups and they don't open very well. So the very top, you'll see there's a cracker in the top. The very top is a thin skin that you could peel back and take the cracker out. And that still leaves this closed. You still need one, right? Um, so go ahead and work on getting the cracker out. It's a dexterity test. Okay, and then, and then you can see that uh, you just pull the tab open and it, it brings the juice out, okay? So while you're working on that, try to keep your mind here for a second. Because we need to understand this. When Jesus gathered his closest disciples for that last supper, the, the men that he was closest to in the world, they were all there. And you know what? He knew everything about them. He knew everything that was in their hearts. He knew, for example, that in just a few minutes, Judas was going to get up, leave the room, and sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. He knew that when his arrest came in just a few hours, the rest of the men would flee in every direction, taking care of themselves first and just leaving him to be tortured. He knew about Peter's denials that were just around the corner. He knew about Thomas's doubt. He, he knew about these guys, everything that was in their past, all that was going on wrong in their hearts at that moment, and he knew what their future held. And here's what he did. He took the bread and he broke it and he served it to them and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And then he took the wine and he poured it and he said, this is my blood. It's the blood of a new covenant. It's not about rule keeping. It's not about religious ceremony. It's about grace. And this new covenant is in my blood. And I'm inviting you to share in it. And they didn't understand because the cross was still hours away. They didn't know that he actually was going to lay down his body. They didn't know he was actually going to spill his blood. But he served them the bread. And he said, this is my body. Listen, this cracker here, um, it, it's mass produced in some communion cracker factory. Uh, it's not magical. It's not holy. It's just a cracker. Doesn't even taste good. The, the juice in here is just from squeezing a grape. It's not magical. It's not holy. But Jesus took 
simple bread and simple grape juice or wine. And he said, this is my body. He was speaking symbolically. This is my blood. And it's given for you. It's given for you. And, and some of you today, you, you might be here um, managing your baggage and you've never, ever laid the baggage down at the foot of Jesus. You'd never let him take over. You, you never accepted his invitation to living water and real life. You've, you've maybe glanced at him a few times, but you haven't really walked with him. And you're tired. Because the baggage is heavy. It's called sin. And the wages are death. And we're guilty and we, we carry the bags. And Jesus says, knowing you, just like he knew the woman at the well, just like he knew the men around the table, he knows you, he knows your junk, he knows the stuff that nobody else knows, he knows what makes you ashamed, he, he knows about the many times you've been let down. And he says to you, I had to come. I had to go to the cross because you were at stake. I did it for you. And if that's you, all you have to do is accept his gift. All you have to do is just raise your hands sort of metaphorically and say, I, I surrender. You're going to be king and I'm going to follow you. You admit your sin, you ask for forgiveness, and he gives it to you. And he begins the bubbling of that well in your life. A lot of us know all about that because we've experienced it and we live in that living water. And yet, even though we live there, sometimes we just get dragged through the mud, amen? And sometimes we get off track. Sometimes we lose sight. And we get back to that place where we don't see ourselves the way God sees us. We see ourselves as these broken, messed up people who can't seem to get it right. And, and God says to you, knowing you, he says, this is my body. This is my blood. Celebrate what I've done for you. Let me set you free. Stop managing your baggage. Lay it down. Lay it at the foot of the cross. And there is a bleach that washes you whiter than snow. It's called the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to celebrate together. I'm going to pray in just a moment. Then we'll take the cracker and drink the juice. And remember that by God's grace, every one of us who is a follower of Christ is invited to this table. It's for you. You've been washed in the blood. There's every reason to celebrate. Father, we thank you because your grace is enough. We thank you because we don't have to earn our way into your favor. We thank you that even though you see the stuff we try to hide from you, it doesn't dissuade you from loving us. But you had to come for us. And so I pray, God, that you would help us to truly, truly receive your grace and walk in your mercy and, and respond to your love. And I pray for every person here who maybe doesn't know you yet, that, that right now this would be the time when they say, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you. And you would save their hearts, give them new life. And Father, for each of us that had been walking with you for some time, 
we know we get dirty. We confess, Father, that we still mess up, but we love you and we receive your cleansing grace. And so now we share in your body and your blood together along with the saints of old as your church. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his presence with singing and great shouts of joy. To him be all glory and honor and power both in his church and in the world that so desperately needs him. Father, may your blessing fall upon each of us in such a way that what is dear to you becomes dear to us. That what you call success would be real in our lives. That we would live lives of submission to you and experience your power and grace. Father, we've come to the well We've come to that spring of everlasting living water. Father, bubble up within us that we might know you and the world might know you through us. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.